morning, church. So great to see you today on a beautiful Sunday morning. So great to be with you. If you were ever had the opportunity or if you ever come into our house, one of the first things you're going to notice is what I would judge as an excessive amount of house plants. You're going to look around and they are everywhere. I went through our house the other day and I thought I would count how many house plants we had. And I feel like every time I went into a room, I found three or four more. I stopped counting when I got to about 50. There's probably more than that. Not only that, but then there's plant babies. They're in jars and they're in different places around our house. My wife, Lisa, she is very, very good at a lot of things. But her level of care for houseplants is pretty close to being a spiritual gift. <laughs> Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. About a year and a half ago, my mom came in town and she brought a houseplant. I didn't ask her for this. She just showed up with it. And here it was. This is a picture of that houseplant. That's the white one, the, or the one on the top. And it had, as you can kind of see, it's withered. It has about seven leaves on it. It has not done great at my mom's house. Here's that same plant that I photoed earlier this week. <laughs> you think I'm kidding, I am not. It is amazing. Now, part of that is because Lisa is really good, and I'm sure she'd love to tell you all kinds of tips and tricks about a house plant, but one of the things that is vital for a plant is light. We have a, our, our house is not big, but it has great light. In fact, even with that plant, I have to rotate it about every two weeks because that plant is drawn to the window. If I never rotated it, the plant would be like this up against the glass, just pressed up wanting to get to the light. For that plant, life is light. That's what it equals. I hope you had the chance to join us last week as we began our sermon series entitled I Am. We're dealing with seven different passages or seven different, seven different times that Jesus said I am and then he followed by a different statement. If you were here last week, Pastor Chris started us off with I am the bread of life. Now as you kind of look ahead and can kind of imagine, I wonder which statement Chris is gonna talk about today. It is when Jesus said I am the light of of the world. Now there's a couple different places in, in the book of John that he says this, and we'll get into that in just a moment. I want to remind you of something that we, we heard last week, and I want to put this up on the screen, because here's the reality for all of us. You discover in all of these statements an overwhelming truth about him that cannot be ignored. Jesus is more than a man, and when you discover that Jesus is more than a man, you find yourself faced with the need to decide how you're going to respond to him. Are you going to accept him, or are you going to reject him? That is our choice when we're faced with that reality. Now, as we look at that today, and we look at that this morning, where Jesus says, I am, the, I am the light of the world, he says that two different places. The first time in John chapter 8, and then another time just briefly in John chapter 9. John chapter 9, we're going to touch on just for a moment in a little bit. The bulk of our time, and what we're going to be focusing on, is that passage in John chapter 8, verse 12. And we're going to read a few verses together. So if you have your Bible with you, 
If you have a phone that has the Bible app, I'm gonna have you go to John chapter eight. If you don't, fear not, we're gonna have it on the screen for you. But just like we do each and every week, I'm gonna ask if you would to stand as we read our text for the day. It says this, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is my Father who sent me. And then they asked him, where is your Father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would also, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. There it is, you may be seated. We always ask God to bless the hearing and the reading of his word. In research and study, as I kind of dug a little bit into the text, I learned some amazing context around that passage. What led up to that statement when Jesus said, I am the light of the world? Now, context gives us a lot of different things. It helps to illuminate and, and really makes things come to life. It really makes that scripture helps us to understand it just a little bit better. It gives us a location, a place, a time, all of those different things. And as I got into the context around that text, I was amazed by what I learned. And since I was, I assumed you would be as well. So I'm gonna share a few things today that will hopefully help you see that a little bit better and clearer. The very first thing we're gonna learn about, we have to go all the way back to John chapter seven, verse two, when it begins what everything that leads up to the statement. In John chapter uh, seven, verse two, we read this. But when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near. So this gives us some context. A very specific time that Jesus was in the temple in Jerusalem, having a debate with the Pharisees and teaching. It gives us a, an exact time that he did this. Now you might be saying to yourself, what is the Feast of Tabernacles? I know I did. I wanted to dig in a little bit more. I know I've read that before. I know I've learned it. And, but I wanted to learn a little bit more about that festival itself. So to do this, we go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16. Here it says, three times a year, all of your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. There's the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. And then it says, no one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. So 
from this, here's a couple of things that we learn. This would have been one of the three busiest times in the city of Jerusalem. Everybody had to go during one of these three times. And so as you look in John chapter seven, the first nine verses of that, that chapter, all of those around Jesus are saying, Jesus, there's the festival. We need to go to the city. Let's go, let's go. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to go because there's people there They wanna do me harm, it's not my time yet, I'm not going. And then you get to verse 10 in John chapter seven, and everybody goes but Jesus. And then at the very end of that same verse it says, Jesus went too, but he went by himself. And so as we get into a little bit more, we understand a a valuable truth about the exact location that Jesus was from the last verse that we read together when we stood on from John chapter eight, verse 20. Here's what that verse says as a reminder. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. So now we have an exact location of where Jesus is doing this teaching. Just a little bit of more context about where he was. In the temple, there are multiple courts that people can go. The very first one is what's called the court of the Gentiles. That was where Jews and Gentiles could go. It was essentially a lobby. Anyone could go, they could come and go as they please. In the second court, that barrier meant that only Jews could go beyond that. And so typically, typical Jewish woman, that's as far as they could go, is the court of women. This was a very, very large area, this, what, the court of women where Jesus was teaching. And we learned something in that verse. We learned that he did this where near where the temple treasury was kept. Now, if you remembered back to that verse, back to Deuteronomy 16, 16, it says, no one should come to the Lord empty-handed in any of these festivals. So during these festivals, everybody would have to go and everybody would have to give an offering. So not only was it the busiest time, it was the busiest place. At the temple treasury, there were 13 different offering boxes. Imagine if we had that. 13 different offering boxes, and there was one singular place to do it. Even in this room, if we were to do that, it was gonna be crowded. It's gonna be congested, and there's gonna be, it's gonna take a lot of time. Now, for those 13 different offering boxes, they had different things that they had to give their offering for. There was such as things like temple upkeep, there was wood for incense, there was just a Thanksgiving offering, a general offering. They had change for a shekel, where they asked everybody to give one shekel for every family member. They take that away, give it to a family in need. Obviously, they did not have change for a shekel, but it would have been a 14th offering box. It was a very busy time in a very busy place, and this is where Jesus was debating with the Pharisees, and he said, I am the light of the world. Now, I don't think it is a coincidence at all that Jesus chose this festival, that Jesus chose this location in the court of women near the temple treasury to make that statement. Something else about the Feast of Tabernacles that I learned is at the very first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, they have a ceremony called the illumination of the temple. 
the illumination of the temple is they have four giant candelabra in the court of women. Now, when I first read that, I was like, four giant candelabra. I envision like a five foot big something that you're gonna buy at Home Goods and put a bunch of candles on it, but that's not the reality of what the illumination of the temple was. It was four giant, giant fires and they couldn't light it without a ladder. Here's an artist's rendition since they didn't have cameras at the time. So there were these four giant torches. Imagine you were at the Olympics at the opening ceremony and they're lighting that, but they're lighting it four different places in the court of women. And it was said that the light from the illumination of the temple would go throughout the entire city and light up every court and every street and every alley and every everyone in the city. And so when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, it gives us a better picture of why he said it there and when he said it. Jesus was essentially saying, I am the light of the world. This light that you see here from the illumination of the temple, that's a beautiful and amazing light, but it's going to fade, it's gonna die, it's gonna flicker, but I'm the light that lasts forever. I remember when I grew up in the suburbs of the big city, St. Louis. I lived in the rural part of the city and I always remember those nights when it was pitch black out and there were searchlights or there were spotlights. I don't know what we call them in Indiana, but we called them spotlights. And so I was always fascinated and I was like, where is that light coming from? I wanna go and see it. And I could never convince my mom and dad to go chase it down. I imagine that's what the illumination of the temple was like. Everyone in Jerusalem is seeing that great light. Jesus is saying the blaze of the temple illumination pierces the darkness, but I am the light of the world. For the one who follows me, not only for one exciting night, but for the entire path of their life, they will live in the light. The temple is brilliant, but it will fade. Now, as we dig a little bit deeper into our text, I kind of laid out those verses and there were a few things that kind of jumped off the page for me and I'll share them with you. It's not clever or rhymey, doesn't rhyme. They don't uh, start with the same letter, but they're just pretty simple observations. And the first one is this, I see the declaration of Jesus. That's that very first thing in verse 12, Jesus makes that declaration where he says, I am the light of the world. And so with that, we're left with a question, what did he mean when he said, I am the light of the world? Got a question for you. Has anyone flown at night before? It is an amazing, amazing sight. I love when I come into the airport or I'm coming into the city. Typically when you do, it's gonna look a little something like this. Especially if you're coming into New York City, it's going to look like that. But I also remember flying at night not coming into the city. When you're about 25 to 30,000 feet and you look down, many times it is pitch black. You'll just see little bitty pockets of light throughout the different areas and you're just like, wow, it is very, very, very dark. It reminds me a little bit about the Israelites in Exodus chapter 13, right when they left Egypt and they're out in the wilderness and they're walking around in the presence of God appears to them during the day in a pillar of a cloud and at night in a pillar of fire. And it says this, it says this, it was because 
they could travel by day or by night. Now, there were about a million or so Israelites or more that were leaving Egypt, and I bet when they got further away, it got dark. It got dark, dark. They couldn't see anything. But they always had that reminder of God's presence. They saw his presence in that pillar of fire, and they could always, always look to that. To that. When we take a light or we take a flashlight into a room, we dispel the darkness and we expose the things that are in that room. Jesus, the light of the world, exposes the sin and exposes all of the things around us as well, the spiritual light. But the condition is that we follow him. So as we look at that just a little bit deeper and you go through the gospel of John about what Jesus was really saying when he said, I am the light of the world, there are at least 15 different times during the Gospel of John that there is a contrast between light and darkness. I'm not gonna read them all. I'll just put a few up on the screen for you. The very first one from chapter 12, verse 46, says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. In 12, verse 35, says, you are going to have the light a little longer. Walk while you still have the light before darkness overtakes you. Chapter nine, verse five, and this is the other occurrence where Jesus makes that statement. He says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And in the Bible and in throughout scripture, light and darkness contrast each other. Light equals God's holiness while darkness equals the separation from God and evil and sin. There is never an in-between, there is never a gray. It's either light or dark and they're not equal. Light will always overtake dark. So scripture, as well as everyone that was there in the court of women, near the temple treasury, at the illumination of the temple, all of the rabbis, all of the Pharisees, everyone would have known exactly what Jesus was saying. They would have known exactly who he was claiming to be. Because throughout scripture, even for, for, Jewish, for, for Jews, it was associated light equals God. Here are some examples of that. In the book of Psalm, chapter 27, verse one, it says, the Lord is my light. Isaiah 60, verse 19, the Lord shall be my everlasting light. Job, chapter 29, verse three, by his light, I walked through darkness. Micah, chapter seven, verse eight, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And then we get to the prophecy in Isaiah chapter nine, verse two, the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. It says this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This is what Jesus was claiming in that moment. And as I look a little bit further, I don't feel like we can focus on this statement where Jesus says, I am the light of the world without going back to how the Gospel of John starts. The first nine verses of the Gospel of John, and I'm going to read them for you. It says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. Kind of reminds me of that time right there 
when the Pharisees didn't understand. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is what Jesus is claiming to be. The other reality about that light is it's not just a revealing light. It's not just walking into a dark room and saying, here's what is in this darkness. It is a light of holiness, a light of grace. It's a light of deliverance. Quite literally, Jesus, as the light of the world, delivers us out of darkness and out of sin. And so we see clearly from that declaration, Jesus says, that's me. That's why I came. The second thing I noticed from our text was the credibility of Jesus. And we start that at verse 13. We see a little bit about that because the Pharisees, they challenged him. They said, here you are, you're appearing as your own witness, but your testimony, it's not valid. In other words, they were saying, it's your word against ours. And just to be clear, Jesus wasn't implying that he was God here. He was absolutely declaring it. And I do feel like before we dig into that a little bit more, we need to go back to John chapter seven, to things Jesus started saying before he got there. Things he started saying to the Pharisees in that setting, in that same context. Here are some things he said before he got to that phrase. In, in verse 16 and 17, he said, this teaching, it's not my own. It doesn't come from me, it comes from my father. In verse 28, he says, you know where I am from and who my father is. In verse 33, he says, I will go to the one who sent me. So all of that was setting up for that moment where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I don't know about you, but there are a lot of times when I can't find anything to watch on TV. I mean, I don't have enough streaming services. There's not enough things on. There's just nothing. I can't find anything. Whenever I get to a moment like that, I typically go back to my recently watched channels uh, on TV. And it's typically one of three things. Top of the list is sports. So if I don't find that, then I'll go down to local channels and I'll watch the news or something else on. And if that doesn't work, my, my third choice is true crime TV. I gotta say, I'm pretty much an expert now on true crime TV. So if you need to know something, just ask me, I, I can tell you. There's a few things I've learned about watching crime documentaries or anything like that. I've learned that the most crucial piece of evidence in a trial or is, that, is to have actual physical evidence. So you need uh, to convict somebody, you need DNA, you need a fingerprint, maybe even the murder weapon, that'll do it. But when they have none of that, the second and the most crucial thing is eyewitness testimony. Is someone who can do one of two things. They can either discredit or validate the defendant, that their eyewitness testimony. And the Pharisees at the time with Jesus were saying, you don't have that. It's just your word, Jesus. 
And so from that, I see a few things that really stand out to me. The first thing is this, that the Jews insisted and the Pharisees insisted that it could not be accurate because it was backed by insufficient witnesses. Now, Jesus refers back to another text in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Here's what it says there. It says, one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus responds to this in a couple of ways. The very first one I like, he's like, I don't need another witness. I'm enough. It's me. I'm alone in that. I could, I could be plenty to do that. And I don't see Jesus saying this statement because of arrogance or supreme knowledge. He's essentially saying, I'm testifying that because that's who I am. It would be like me getting into a debate with a surgeon, and I was like, I don't know. I don't know if that's how you should do surgery. And the surgeon's like, I'm a surgeon. I, I'm all I need is that witness. But Jesus goes a little bit further, and he goes, okay, I do have two witnesses. There's me, and there's my father who sent me. And you clearly don't know him. And then the next part of the text, Jesus deals with the right to judge. It says, and when we talk about judgment, the reality is Jesus did not come into the world to judge the world. Here's what I mean. In the book of John 3.16, very familiar verse, we don't read, for God so judged the world that he sent his only son. It says God so loved the world. Jesus came to show unconditional love. And then he deals with some of the Pharisees who were asking him like, hey, we're, we're, Jesus, who are you judging or what right do you have to judge? He goes on and essentially says there's two kinds of judgment. There's a human judgment and there's a judgment from God. In the human judgment, here's the reality of that. We are never going to know, and Jesus is saying this, you're never gonna know everyone's story. You're not gonna have all the entire picture. You're never gonna, you're never gonna really see below the surface. So by human standards, and this is what the Pharisees were trying to do with Jesus, he says, I judge no one. He's saying by these standards, I pass judgment on no one. Now, I'm gonna pause there, at least for me, just for a moment. Because as I look at that, that's a good reminder for me. It's a good reminder for me that the people that I encounter, the people that I come across, I'm never gonna know their entire story. I'm never gonna know all of the details of their life. I'm never gonna know everything they're going through. And so therefore, I don't have any right to judge them on human standards. That's a reminder for me. But there's also the judgment that comes from God, the holy and perfect judgment, because God knows everything. And Jesus is saying this as well. I know everything and I can judge based on those standards. The judgment made by God is perfect and holy because he sees everything. He sees well below the surface, sees our sin, sees it all. There's another thing I pull out of the text is a challenge for you and me. And it's something we see in response to all of that. And it's followed directly after Jesus makes that statement, I am the light of the world. And it's our devotion to Jesus. Devotion to Jesus. Plants, just like the one my mom brought with her for Eli's graduation, 
they are never gonna move away from the light. They are said to be, and here's your word for the day, positively phototropic. They are drawn to the light. They will never move away from the light. That plant in our front window is never gonna see the light and go, ah, I'm going the other direction. They are drawn to the light. As children of God, we are drawn to the light. We are positively phototropic. We were drawn to him. We will always move towards him. The unbeliever, darkness, evil, and sin hates the light. Jesus bluntly told the scribes and Pharisees that they have no knowledge of God. The fact that they did not recognize him for who he was served as proof that they did not really know God. And the tragedy of the whole story of Israel was that they should have seen and known that he was the Messiah. Everything in their history had led up to that moment and they missed it. In the book of Luke, chapter one, verse 78 and 79, we read this. The rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Jesus says, follow me and you will not walk in darkness. You will have the light of life. So our challenge in being devoted to Jesus is to follow him. And in that passage, the word follow, we're gonna do a real short Greek word study on a Sunday morning. The word for follow is akulathane. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's been a few decades since I've taken Greek, but we'll just go with that. We're gonna say that's how it is pronounced. Akulathane means to follow. Here's essentially five different things that means to follow. It's as a soldier following his captain and his leader, a servant accompanying his master, a wise counselor's opinion or judgment or a verdict, obedience to the laws of a city or a state, listening and comprehending of a teacher's lesson. To follow Jesus is to give one's own body, soul, and spirit in obedience to him. And to do so is to walk in the light. When we walk alone or if we walk without the light and we try to navigate life's problems, we are bound to go wrong. When we walk alone, we are bound to take the wrong path without clear direction. And the other reality is that without Jesus, we will miss out on a beautiful and an amazing relationship. Because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Although I don't do it often or often enough, I really love to hike. I love to go out and just hike. I also really love to see God's beauty displayed throughout the world. And there's sometimes I can't, I just can't get that in central Indiana. So whenever I get the chance and I can combine both of those of hiking and seeing God's handiwork, it is a home run for me and for Lisa as well. We love it. So that in mind, I feel like that's one of the reasons why I feel like Sedona, Arizona is one of the most amazing places on the planet. It has hundreds of miles of hiking trails and God's paintbrush that's on display there is almost like no equal. So anytime I have a chance to go, I'm going to go. 
I've been a couple of times. In fact, we had the opportunity about one year ago, Lisa and I, to go with some friends to Sedona, and so we did, and it was amazing. When we were there, our friends told us about a hike they wanted to go on, and they're like, we haven't been on it, we don't know much about it, and in fact, it's a secret hike. It's not on any of the public maps, it's not on any registry, the paths are not marked, and I'm like, all right, I'm all about this. And so the hike was to the subway, not the restaurant. This, that would have been a terrible hike. <laughs> the subway rock formation. And they showed us pictures of it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we gotta see that, we gotta go. And here's the, re- here's the deal about getting to the subway rock formation. You access that through another popular hike, which is about a five and a half mile loop called the Boynton Canyon Trail. And when you go, There's only one of two ways to find it. The first way is to go with somebody who knows where it is or follow somebody who knows where it is. The second way to get to it is you have to look for this tree. That's it. And so the whole time we're hiking, we're like, is that it? Is that it? Is that it? Until we finally found that tree after about two and a half miles into the hike, and when you get to that tree, you go to the right, and you cut, and you find a less traveled path through the woods that leads to the subway rock formation. Here's the deal. From that tree to the subway is only a half mile. That's it. So I wondered, when we saw it, and when we got there, I wondered how many people throughout history have walked that other trail and never ever knew it was there. And so, if you do find that trail, you're gonna get to see this. And you stand there and you get to look out through the subway and that beautiful reality. And so if you never ever went off the path and you never knew which direction to go, you would miss it. And of course, you would miss photo opportunities like this with your group standing on the edge in that beautiful picture It's a reminder for me about what it is like to follow Jesus. And I told that story last night and I was reminded by somebody that's in that picture, you don't remember going back, do you? I'm like, no, he goes, we got lost. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I remember that now. To follow Jesus, to have that clear path, that illuminating light is an amazing reality and it's a beautiful life that God gives us. I see that as a picture of what it is to follow Jesus when he says, I am the light of the world. It's not just an exposing light and a revealing light. He rescues us and delivers us from darkness. When we read these statements, when we hear Jesus say, I am, and it's followed by one of those statements, we discover an overwhelming truth that cannot be ignored. Jesus is more than a man, and when you discover that Jesus is more than a man, you find yourself with the need on how you, to decide how you're going to respond to him. Are you going to accept him, or are you going to reject him? 